and welcome to Tickets, a podcast series exploring the future of live experiences. Each episode, we take you behind the scenes with the visionaries, producers and operators delivering some of the most vital and innovative experiences around. From Broadway theatre to international boxing, virtual reality to retail. Tickets aims to join the dots between disciplines, share knowledge and new ideas and better understand what goes into bringing these experiences to life. My name's Howard Gray. I'm the founder of H Bureau, a specialist consultancy practice helping media, entertainment and experience companies grow. On the guest list today is Michelle Gray Campion. Following stints at leading members clubs Soho House and Neuhaus, for the last two years Michelle has been the creative director of the New York Times highly respected Times Talk series, featuring a veritable who's who from across the world of arts and culture. Michelle's a highly respected curator and programmer, but has a background you may not expect. With a master's degree in molecular genetics, she's also been a magazine editor and a TV presenter. Recorded just as she's about to set off on the next chapter of her career, we talk about our need to belong, the role of the creative director, why hybrid talent is thriving again, and the ups and downs of having a dissenting view. And that metallic sound you can hear in the first few minutes? It was Michelle's necklace. It took us a while to realise. One other thing, there are a few naughty words in today's episode, so listener discretion is advised. I always wanted to say that. Enjoy. So Michelle, right. hi. Thank hi. You. Thanks for taking the time to, to have a chat. Thank um, you. Let's start maybe just with what you do. So can you tell me a little bit about what you do here at the New York Times? Okay. So I'm the creative director of New York Times Live um, Times Talks. I feel like these days creative director is such a weird, ubiquitous, non-descriptional word because I think a creative director at an advertising agency is incredibly different than a creative director in a hospitality space or in a media organization. But essentially the way that it relates to what I do is I have a bird's eye view of how all of the different creative parts of Times Talks works together. So programming is just one element of it. So um, there's audience development, making sure that the audience is culturally diverse, you know, um, gender diverse, professionally diverse, um, always, you know, making sure that we look and go after a psychographic, I think is is always been my main MO. I think demographics are kind of... Uh, kind of stupid and this idea that we want to just go after a millennial you know millennials or just z generation it kind of really misses the point i think that what i've always tried to do is go after a psychographic which is people of any age any cultural background any gender any profession that are curious in you know the the specific thing that i'm programming another part of creative direction is that you can have incredible programming and the audience is right but you know, uh, do the visual marketing materials, are they on brand with what, you know, the vision that you're trying to create? So while I've been here, um, I've headed up a complete rebrand of Times Talks, which is going to be launched next month, um, working with an incredible strategic and design agency called Base. So those are the, and then there's also PR. It's kind of, you've got the great programming, you've got the audience that you want, everything looks amazing. Are you going out? you know, is the message that you're communicating with the media platforms and, and various um, organizations and um, outlets, is it what you want to communicate? Because I think very much um, PR is targeted. I, I, I think that you need to be careful about 
um, what platforms you go on because that says something about your brand. I don't think that it's sort of like all press is good press. I think that you want to be very careful and strategic about where your message lands and who it's going out to and making, you know, making sure that um, it makes sense with the brand. So Times Talks is, was very traditionally celebrity driven, but I didn't think that, you know, our press should be landing on just Jared and Perez Hilton. So, you know, so it's it's coming up with this like very holistic creative direction. So that involves programming, PR, marketing, audience and audience development. And then there's another section of it, which I think is something that has changed and will continue to change dramatically in this field is that it's no longer okay just to be creative. If you cannot understand how to make editorial and creative ideas commercially viable, there's no way forward anymore in the experiential space, I don't think. So um, I think that in the past it was very much, you know, um, uh, church and state, you, you know, one, one, one portion of the business was... Um, extremely creative and came up with all these amazing ideas and then it was you know another portion uh, you know another department was was meant to sell them and I think that it was always kind of like the creative people were like never talk to me about fucking money this is my vision I you know complete you know you need to sell it as is and the financial people were traditionally incredibly not creative and could never really understand um you know big experiential visions now the superpower is how to bring those two things together and have a real understanding of how they live together not compromising the editorial integrity but still being able to make money because i think media companies are going through such a big change at the moment where advertising is is changing and essentially going away and they have to find a way to make or to at least you know um reinvent the wheel a little bit with regards to revenue and experiential is it's not in its infancy but it's it's starting to become you know potentially a, like a, you know a more of a serious contender in the revenue space and so anybody who can um, be creative and understand both portions I think will will do really well in this space so if we go back to how you, when you started out yeah how did, how did you get started in your career and at what point did you realize that this kind of alchemy of talent and community and curation was where you were were moving towards I mean, I mean completely by accident I think we were talking earlier before that I have um, a master's in molecular genetics so I, science was always extremely fascinating to me I, I knew that I would never do bench work so um, very quickly I knew that I would go into some form of science communication so after I graduated I moved to London and strangely was like the a reporter and presenter for a science TV show called Einstein TV <laughs> which like did really badly and like was only on the air for like a year but um, it, it kind of I don't know it's it definitely sparked the first um, you know kind of early interest in communicating and curating ideas because part of curating a show it was like being an editor you you know like any producer or writer you have to find the ideas that were that had scientific validity but were fun and interesting to the to the public because I think that's the sort of key to what I do it's 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 not you know I, it can't just be fun and frivolous and and entertaining and it can't be just dry interesting and meaningful because then nobody you know then you lose complete engagement so that was kind of the first um 
experience I had with like I loved science and I really wanted people to love it too so I had to find that sweet spot about you know what what were the interesting experiments and innovations that were going on but they were fun and like you know uh, easily digestible so that was um, I did that for a little bit and then I went home to Australia and I was the founding editor-in-chief of this magazine called Yen which um, still on stands today but had was started it with a you know with a couple of friends and the idea was that we felt in Australia all those years ago that there were no magazines for really smart girls who also liked fashion it was again this idea that it was like so many things were mutually exclusive it was like you you know that you know like if you were really into fashion really all you cared about was reading about blowjobs and breakups and makeup and if you were really smart that you were you know you were reading new scientist and scientific american and that there was like there was no space that existed to bring the two together so we created yen in an attempt to i guess what we thought was smart girls who like fashion so I wrote a lot about, uh, you know, the AIDS crisis in India and breast cancer and sort of all of these things that, which I think now Mary Claire and publications do very well. But you know, twenty years ago, when I was growing up, they, you know, they were they were not doing that. So I did that for a couple of years, and then um, I moved to New York and went to journalism school, and um, at Columbia, and then got a job right before I was supposed to finish as the um, a senior editor at, at Healthcare Informatics, which is like a super hardcore um, tech science journal for um, the medical profession and the science profession who wanted to understand technology as it related to science and medicine. Um, and it paid what I thought was like this huge salary. I think it was like $50,000 or something. So I dropped out of Columbia and I took that job and I did that for a couple of years. And then I got married and had a baby at, and um, kind of really like wanted, wanted to get out of pure science journalism because I felt like I was in fucking school all the time. It was like deadline after deadline of like very, very intensely technical. I mean, I was reading some of the articles I used to write, but... It, I mean, incredibly technical um, uh, stories about, you know, genealogy and pharmacology and anesthesiology. And and I was always on deadline and I just thought, fuck, I feel like I'm still in university and this is like I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. So I took a break. Did you miss Yen? Do you think Yen was... Yeah, I think so. from that a little bit? I think I, I think I missed, I think I did miss that um, a lot. And I think like anything I've come to learn and I, I was just a very late developer in terms of maturity. I just never appreciated what I had at the time. You know, I, I it was like Einstein TV was so much fun, but, you know, I was very quickly on to the next. And Yen was really great, but then I wanted to move to New York. And, and so I, you know, I think if I had that opportunity now, I would have, probably appreciate it a little bit more I mean I learned a lot but yeah the science journalism it was just too narrow it was too niche and I um so I left and I started freelancing for a bunch of magazines from Teen Vogue to art platforms and had always had an incredible um like cultural appetite so they sort of read voraciously my husband's a photographer um went to galleries and museums and not as into theater as I would have liked. I would have liked to be more. It just for some reason didn't really float my boat. But um, so I was always sort of doing that for other magazines. And then randomly 
um, my husband was on the committee at Soul House and got an email saying there that the head of membership had left and they were looking for someone new and the um, the qualifications were so like unexpected it was like we want someone incredibly educated that can talk to the high and the low is very personable is great at admin understands the cultural zeitgeist it was kind of this thing and he was reading and he was like you know this sounds like you and i and i thought well i don't have any experience in hospitality like i kind of think so house a bit fucking lame um and i would never probably pay for a membership but that's fine so i went to this interview and my boss was this incredible guy tim geary who had written three novels and had got a scholarship to Cambridge kind of also was was quite um cynical about the membership club and I think you know he's like well why should we hire you and I said I don't really don't think you should because I don't think I would even pay to be here you know like I've come with friends and I was like it's not really my jam and you know I, I don't and so he hired me it so he had, he had a contrarian attitude, should yes, we say? Yes, exactly. He's very, yeah, very contrarian. Um, but I also think that that was another lesson for me. It's like dissent and not going with the status quo and being able to challenge what has been happening is almost, has been a really big gift for me. It's also been my Achilles heel because it can really fucking rub people the wrong way. Not everybody wants to hear the truth and, and not everybody agrees with you know what I have to say but but it's a healthy place to be always in a place of questioning and always in a place of you know what you know what's what's wrong with the situation how can I improve and that's not to say to be a pessimist and to you know to constantly be denigrating something or saying how shit it is it's just you know like what are the things about this that kind of suck and don't work and what can, how can we make it better at the same time being optimistic about the opportunity to make it better so I stayed at SOAS for a year and a half. I think I made it better. I think a few people will say I did. Who knows? It's debatable. Um, it's also very subjective. But I had a great time there. And I learned about hospitality. And I think something I had never had any experience with. I didn't even bartend when I was you know, growing up. I think I did waitressing once and I got fired. So it was so bad. But that hospitality element, I think, has also been a cornerstone of, of programming and creative direction because understanding the experience and how to make people feel good is pretty much what you're trying to do when you're programming you know i'm always trying it's it's sort of like i always say it's like you lure people in with the candy and then you feed them the salad right like i want my programming or the programming that we do to be meaningful and have you know be culturally relevant and be educational and interesting but you don't lure people in with that like you have to lure them in with feeling good and having a good time and entertainment and hospitality taught me how to do that um and so i'm very uh very grateful for that experience because i like i i didn't understand what it meant to um to to set things up in a way that, that I knew how to have a good time myself. It was you know some alcohol and some, <laughs> some friends and food, but there is an art to hospitality, and not to say in any way that I'd mastered it, but I lo- at least learnt like the cursory skills. What was one of the things that surprised you during your time there that you know you weren't expecting? Yeah, I loved it. You know what? It, what I what I learned is that fundamentally, whatever you are or who you are or where you come from, everybody wants to belong. So there's this like deep desire as human beings that we want to belong. And you may choose to belong to Soas, I may choose to belong somewhere else. It may be a soccer club, it may be a chess club, but, but there is a desire for us on a, on a human level to belong. And 
that's essentially what live experience is creating as well. It's an opportunity to feel like you belong, whether it just be for the evening or the afternoon or, or for the year or 10 years that you're a member of a certain club. And I thought that was really interesting. And you learn, and, and you create belonging through creating community. And you create community through putting people together who have to in some way interact on a human level. And that's programming too. I mean, I think... You know, I always say there's two types of programming. There's there's one that's passive, which is a series of talks or performances and you sit with someone next to you and then you leave, like going to the movies. And then there's participatory <coughs> or active programming, which is, you know, changes a little bit when you add in a Q&A, but, you know, discussions and workshops and debates and um, opportunities to connect with people about whatever it is, whatever discussion or whatever um, activation you were part of. Um and again, why people like that is, is because they're looking to build community. They're looking to build connection. So um, I think that's what I really enjoyed and took away from Soul House. On the flip side, I really saw some fucking hideous behavior <laughs> and wondered, sometimes questioned, you know, the very essence of what fucking assholes people can be. But um, I don't know. I think that's like a whole other conversation about entitlement and... <laughs> And um, a certain subset of people, but but it wasn't enough to um, to not enjoy that experience. We've, I think it's really interesting what you say about we've all we all have a need to belong. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's getting exacerbated now more than ever, or do you do you see it's the same as it ever was? Do you think it's a social media and isolation and whatever else make make us desire human contact more than before? I I think that the inherent desire to belong has existed since the dawn of time. I think that the the ease of which we find ourselves being able to belong has become more difficult because of things like technology and social media and this desire to this desire to be constantly fronting. It's it's a barrier to belonging, right? The social media and the Instagram and and wanting to you know look at looking at someone else's feed and desiring that rather than wanting to connect on a real level because we all know that social media is not real so that almost is like a barrier so i think that there is sort of a backlash and a desire to hark back to building community i think also you know families move away now the modern world it's very normal for your kids to go away to college and live in another country and um and and friends at school we all hear these you know it's not my generation but stories of kids apparently i read some statistic that said it's the safest generation that's ever existed because in my day we were drink driving (laughs) taking drugs and going to parties and and it wasn't a particularly safe environment now these kids are not going out they're sitting and, and communicating on their phones and not drink driving and which i guess in one in one hand is really great but it also begs the question that you know how the fuck are they going to, to live in the world without the social skills needed or that you know that we developed in those super awkward situations in our high you know in our teenage years of being drunk at parties and um you know that kind of thing so i think yes i do i do like i, I do, like i said i think the desire to belong has always has always been there but um the you know the ways in which we create that are well, they, they exist, but makes me think about the curator and all that. So, who is yes. the if you're a teenager now, yes. and maybe you are living in a kind of digital world, yeah. 
who is that curator of your tribe or community going to be? So we're roughly the same age, I'm guessing. <laughs> um, and pre sort of early internet, there wasn't quite the connectivity level there is now. Mm -hmm. And so therefore the, the in-person experience was more organic and just happened naturally because you kind of had to be there, not everyone had a phone. So, right. but now who is that curator or organizer or connector gonna be for people who are 14 to 18 years old? I, I wonder whether that, whether that the role of the curator is gonna become more or less important, whether does it mean Facebook is is the curation platform? It's well, I guess, but like the, the, I think like the um, the difficulty with that, which everybody you know is is extremely cognizant about, is just so biased, right? So I think you know when we were at school and we were communicating for better or worse, forced to listen to people's ideas that we that we weren't interested in, or forced to hang out with people that maybe didn't have the same belief system as we did or the same values. And what happens with social media and Facebook, and we all see it, is is that because of the algorithms, I'm only like, I mean, it's pretty obvious, I work at the Times, I'm, I'm quite liberal. I don't see Breitbart, and none of that stuff is coming up on my feed. So I, I'm very, extremely unbalanced, unless I go out of my way to hear about the other point of view. and. I mean, essentially, without over-trivializing it, it's the crux of the problem in this country is that we only see the way we see and we don't have a desire to hear or um, listen to, you know, to, to the other side. So these curators, they're just circling the drain of, the, of what you believe anyway, anyway, if that makes any sense. Like you're not learning the other side, you're not learning how to, you know, you're not crossing the political aisle or the ethical aisle or, you know, I guess bipartisanship would be the best way to describe that it's gone down the toilet. But I think that that's a real hindrance for kids because they're not learning about conflict resolution. I mean, I mean, I feel like it's a whole social conversation that's probably not relevant. In this, in this it's very interesting sex. though. Like, it's definitely connected. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of the curation, it's, um, you know, I, I think it's a really exciting space for teenagers. I feel like when we were younger, it was kind of like, well, you know, I grew up in Australia, so it's very different than the States, but it was like, you know, it's like three museums and a couple of art galleries and you know, one place where everyone who came to town played music. And so I think now there is this incredible opportunity to go out and seek out much more diverse programming. And, you know, if you're extremely interested in some very, very niche thing, there's programs that exist for you. Whereas I, when I was younger, because their communication tools weren't there, maybe they were happening in a basement somewhere, but I didn't, I never knew about it because I, you know, I, I wasn't served um, the communication about it. So. Uh, let's switch lanes a little bit into, okay. into talent. Um, so I know a couple of weeks ago you had Common as yes. a Times Talk guest. Yes. Um, I think him and people like maybe Lin-Manuel Miranda are mm -hmm. kind of, a, I believe, a, the kind of resurgence of these polymath yes. hybrid types where talent who can work across a bunch of different disciplines, they seem to have an endless wealth of yes. creativity and yeah. they can turn their hand to almost anything. Um, in your dealings with talent at the New York Times, at sure. Soho House and your previous work, um, what do you think's changed in the last few years, maybe micro or macro, to enable these kind of talented people to thrive again? It feels like they've, they've, they've found this resurgence somehow. I mean, I, I feel that, well, first of all, I think that all of these artists that have something to say beyond, I am amazing and this is my musical or artistic talent, are thriving now in our current political climate because of Trump. So I think a lot of things changed. I think that you for sure as a curator, and I, I don't want to pigeonhole myself too much, but 
I'm way less interested in doing something that doesn't have social relevance. Not to say that I'm super into politicized things, although I am, but it, it's it's not all that I do. But I, but I think people like Common, the reason, yes, he's extremely talented. He can act. He can he can rap. I, I'm probably a multitude of other things, produce, write. Why I think his platform and star is rising is because he has a message, and it's a me- you know, and he has a community that really needs that message, and he speaks to that, you know, and he speaks to them, and I think that that, I think that's a big part of why his artistic medium is doing so well. I mean, he's the the Oscar um, nominated song is called Stand Up For Justice. The last one he wrote for Selma. You know, I, they, like they, they all have a meaning beyond just sounding good. And I think, um, I think we're all searching for that in these extremely turbulent times, right? The, I, I, I don't know about you, but I, um, I'm not trying, you know, I'm not saying that, I, you know, I'm not interested in art unless it's political or has social relevance. It, it's not true, but, but it, feels that it resonates more with me because I think that the best part about art as a medium is that it has the power to change. It has the power to start substantive conversations. It has the power to transform people's ideas um, about certain things. And if we're not using it for that, it just seems like such a fucking waste. So obviously um, print and digital too, it's easy to edit before you go live. Yes in the area you're operating in, which is more the live space, yes. it's really not. Totally. So what happens out there is forever documented. Sure. Um, what measures do you take, if any, to to manage that when you've got such an eclectic mix of talent coming through? Or, or is it, do you keep it very, very open? I mean, well, here's the thing. First of all, like you said, it's live journalism. And, and so we don't give questions. You know, I mean, it's the same thing. If you were doing a... If you were doing an interview for Vogue, you couldn't call the journalist and say, let me know what we're talking about. You can't talk about this. You can't. I mean, you know, it's because of our platform, we're not interested in um, social gossip and stuff. So I think that the people that come to it know that we're not going to talk about, you know, their ex-wife or their baby mama or like those aren't the things that we're interested in. But we are interested in meaningful things but it, it I mean if you've seen any of the talks it happens on every platform some people come and they're just they just give canned press release responses and there's nothing you can do about it and some people really open up and you get really interesting conversations I don't think that we're in a position to put to make people uncomfortable we're in a position to make people talk about the important issues that are important to them so they're going to want to be open about it to begin with is that like it's not about like surprising them and making them feel uncomfortable and saying things they don't want um there's another platform for that right like the national Enquirer. i don't know it's not you know i don't think like invest good journalism needs to make people i think they need what we want them to talk about the important pressing substantive and sometimes uncomfortable issues but in a comfortable setting if that makes sense and most guests know what they're Totally. They know what they sign up for. They're not going to do it. There's many guests that talent that I ask and I know right off the bat that they're probably going to say no because they're not willing to talk about certain things. And those are the things we want to talk about. And so there's no point. I think, you know, like I said, it's live journalism. So why why would we get get somebody um, on stage if the most important thing they should be talking about they refuse to talk about? So just just before we came on and started recording, um, you mentioned the Medici. Yes. Um, and more just we were talking around the ideas of um, disparate themes coming together 
and your your background in science maybe would would surprise someone on face value given that your <laughs> your your current job it, it seems kind of slightly incongruous um, yes what did you learn from from reading that book and what what are you, what are your thoughts on it in terms of curating community events and bringing talent and audiences together i guess yeah i mean so i, I actually had to look it up because i i'm not feeling particularly articulate but the idea of the book is it says why do so many world-changing insights come from people with little or no related experience Charles Darwin was a geologist when he proposed the theory of evolution and it was an astronomer who finally explained what happened to the dinosaurs. So this idea is that innovations occur when people see beyond their expertise. So, and I think that that, I don't know if you've, how involved you've been in, in, in creative spaces, but your story about the boxer and the music, the, well, the boxing, uh, the guy that was creating boxing, uh, live boxing experiences and your music expertise, you bring something to the table that is that has a different perspective and i think that you know what happens when you live and work and um you, you know you take take up just one siloed space is it because it lacks a perspective which you can't help right you know i'm just programming art i'm just programming culture and then you know it takes you know going to dinner and speaking with somebody who's you know in medicine or who's a photographer or who's a musician to say oh my god you know uh did you know that um uh Oh, I'm, I'm doing a program with Pussy Riot and Marina Abramovic and you know I was at a dinner party where somebody said oh did you know that like um, Nadia from Pussy Riot was super into performance art so it's this idea that we come together from from different perspectives and different fields to make sort of like the sum is greater than the, I mean the whole is greater than the sum of the parts in the sense that it's just it's so narrow and so um I don't know sort of like like horses with blinkers on when we're just thinking about our own lane and i think the beauty comes in the collaborative space of people that don't come from the same disciplines and in the future as a as a program or curator mm-hmm. maybe for brands particularly do you think companies are going to start bringing that discipline in-house or are they going to need a, a third party to I help mean, to help them navigate this and I join mean, the dots y- you would as brands it's a mis- i think i mean and this is my humble you know opinion that no one cares about it's a mistake to bring somebody in-house because who wants to be the in-house programmer for unilever do you think you're going to get an incredibly creative dynamic innovative person that will take that corporate position no so it has to be i think for it to be successful and it to, for it to be meaningful and interesting and culturally relevant you're going to have to leave that to the creative class and creative class generally don't want the true innovators the true creators they only last at corporations so long before they can't stand the suffocation so ultimately they will go out on their own and i mean look if you're an amazing brand like comme de garçon or i i don't know some you know nike or some of that sure great i i'm sure you can you can attract but but all of these kind of big tech companies banks you know who are all investing a lot of money and live experiences yeah i mean bringing in an in-house programmer i mean it's like the kiss of death what's something in the last year that you've learned that surprised you shit i wish you'd asked me this yesterday <laughs> I would have been able to come up with a good answer I'm just trying to think what what has um I mean I guess like it's it's not very profound externally but it's more of an internal thing that I that I've realized that I want that I would like to 
I'd like to contribute to society on a greater level and that can be through programming and I think we talked a little bit about that before like giving people a platform to have important and substantive conversations or um, giving people from marginalized communities a voice or giving female directors an opportunity to show films that you know they otherwise would have been shut out from showing and, and I feel that a much stronger desire to do that and I think I've learned that through seeing the incredible um, reaction we get from audiences and and um you know i I think that yeah i I think that that's probably what i've learned is that that it's more about myself about what what i want to contribute and do but it has been a result of of i think you know the best talks and programs that we've put together that i put together over the past year have been the ones that have really sparked you know civic dialogue and and change and um and have kind of you know encouraged people to act on um, on the issues that they care about. Uh, what are some of your favourite talks, movements, discussion groups, curators, programmers out there right now? I really enjoy the Moth. I think that their storytelling platform is is very real and authentic in a way that ridiculous brands use that word authentic and it doesn't mean anything like they they you know I really really like that platform of storytelling um I I enjoy um podcasts are kind of you know I'm like you know probably the last person at the party that like in the past year have got super into podcasts whether it's serial or the daily or two dope queens or invisibilia that mode has has really kind of entranced me. I think it's, um, uh, you know, audio storytelling is obviously very different than film. And, um, yeah, so I, I've got into that. But, again, I'm pretty much the last person at the park <laughs> on that one. Um, in terms of in terms of programming, I, I actually think you know I think Neuhaus does and still does a really incredible job. I think what they do so well, and and what I sometimes miss at the times is they're because of they don't have constraints on on the number of people attending and ticket sales. They're they have the ability to give emerging artists and storytellers a platform. Um, and they can do the high and the low and, you know, the unknown artist, but also someone very well known. And I think that they still do a really beautiful job. What are you looking forward to most this year, project-wise or anything else? Well, I have a, I created um, a Time Stalks 20th anniversary festival that's happening in April. And I think that's really exciting. A really good lineup of programming. Grace Jones is opening and um, have Denzel Washington talking with George C. Wolfe. We have Nan Golden talking about the opioid crisis. We have Katie Couric talking about um, all the kind of hot button issues in America. Um, we have uh, Elizabeth Moss and Margaret Atwood for The Handmaid's Tale, which I think is sort of like a very iconic feminist book made into a series my wife will be wanting to come yeah. to that one I can tell you for sure <laughs> yeah she's read it read the book oh, and really? devoured the series oh my yeah. god I know yeah. it's so good I, I, I love the series it's too it's good so that's coming up in April yep and after that anything else no I, we talked before just you know um, you know leaving the times and, and and really going out on my own and seeing you know how I can leverage my skills and you know minimal talents to <laughs> Says says the person with the what is it molecular genetics degree? I can't even remember what the name of the degree is. It's so complicated. Um, 
No, to do exactly what what we were talking about, which is, you know, bringing it all together for brands that, you know, are interested in engaging through a live experience and, and hopefully giving them a, a creative solution that isn't sort of too cookie what, what do you What do you think brands tend to get wrong when it comes to pro, either it's programming events or designing experiential stuff, whatever it is? What do, you, what do you think they tend to get wrong most often? They always want to stay so safe that the message is incredibly banal and diluted. So they won't, they never want to go for anything controversial. They'd rather make... A, a kind of lukewarm impact and be safe and make sure they're not offending anybody and you know make sure that the person that they choose will not say anything controversial or do anything controversial or be anything and I think that I understand I mean I understand these are large corporations and you know we saw what went wrong with the Pepsi commercial so you know they, they've definitely fucked it up enough to be nervous about that um, I also think that they 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 tend to just want very obvious things. It's like the amount of, of companies that want their CEO on stage is unbelievable. I, it's like I don't uh, – nobody wants to see that. It's not great for your brand. In fact, it's deleterious for your brand because probably it's a white man who's going to get up there and you know, bore the shit out of everyone. So if that's what you want people to take away from in your experiential event, then – it's kind of defeating the purpose. So there's like a lot of self-serving desires that I think are, you know, detrimental. Also, yeah, just, just you know, there are some brands that are amazing and, and want to really, you know, take it um, to another level and go out there. But most of them just, they just want the tried and tested, you know, talk and party with, you know, somebody who's, you know, essentially lukewarm. Um, from a personal perspective or maybe professional one, yeah. what's the most memorable live experience you've had in the last handful of years I think it was the um, we had like at Neue Haus um, the Creative Time sleepover so we partnered with Creative Time and we turned the entire Neue Haus into this like amazing performance space, art installations Pictionary, tarot card readings um, Tom Sachs was serving rice and beans. We had a molecular cocktail lounge. There were um, beds in there. Um, we had unbelievable performances. And it was kind of this like all night immersive extravaganza of um, sort of like art and entertainment and food and hospitality. And I think it was, um, I don't know, it was pretty interesting. I think, you know, the New York Times has been an incredible platform. Um, but. I think that, like, yeah, those, the more dynamic an experience, I think, you know, it's always the, the most fun to create. You know, the, the linear experience um, can be really important and, and satisfying and the conversations are, are extremely meaningful and important. But I don't know, I, I kind of, like, for me on a personal level, it's always more fun to do something a little more out there. Thank you so much for your time. Um, good luck with the festival. Thank and you. And good luck with your... Uh, new chapter thank you for the rest of 2018 I really appreciate that thank you join us next time for another edition of Tickets you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts and Stitcher or listen back through SoundCloud and Acast Tickets is an HBO production find out more at hbo.com